G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Robert Shaw. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our preliminary final review episode. 207 games in a season. We've had 206 now. Just one to go. And it is the big one. Next Saturday afternoon at the MCG, Geelong playing Sydney. A little bit of history to talk about there, but uh, I'm going to bring in my uh, learned co-host immediately on this podcast as we say a very big hello to Mr. Robert Shaw. You happy with this grand final matchup, Shawy? Yes, I'm not too bad about this. I was um, was disappointed in Brisbane. I thought they'd get closer than that. Uh, You picked a blowout at there would be a blowout in the preliminary final weekend. And I think we both uh, predicted an extremely close uh, second preliminary final from the Sydney cricket ground. Well, it's amazing. I, I did. I can't remember in what forum I said this actually, but it is remarkable how often in the two preliminary final system, which has now been going for, uh, well, since 1994, a remarkable how often there is one blowout and one thriller, and thus it proved again. And boy, was the game in Sydney a thriller! How tense was the last few minutes up there? That was wonderful because Sydney was sensational early, and we'll go through it a little bit later. But in general terms, um, Collingwood were Collingwood, weren't they? And it took a, a supreme effort for Hawthorne, uh, for sorry, for Sydney to to play. Tremendous pressure football and get out to a good lead, but uh, these magpies aren't to be denied, and that that gave the independence. Like I could only imagine those barracking for Collingwood and Sydney, how they were feeling because uh, uh, you certainly got right into it, and uh, that's a good grand final, I reckon, Ron. It's a it good is, grand final, Geelong Sydney. It is a great matchup, and uh, I mentioned the history. Um, so these are two foundation members of the VFL. When I say that, I'm talking about the Swans uh, in their previous incarnation of South Melbourne, so don't get all pedantic with me, but the Swans will be contesting their 18th grand final. And for people that think, oh, well, actually, the last 20 years, Sydney have been very successful. They were off the radar for a long time, but South Melbourne, uh, the South Melbourne version of the Swans was a remarkably successful club early on in the VFL. In fact, I think 1936 was their 10th grand final. Of course, the VFL beginning in 1897. So next Saturday will be the Swans' 18th grand final appearance. Uh, Geelong will be making its 19th grand final appearance. The Cats also a very successful side. But despite that, Robert, 30, hang on, 35 grand final appearances between them so far. Not once have these two clubs played each other in a grand final. So I'm a big fan of history. I love it when there's a different matchup 
in a grand final, and we've got that this year. So it's going to be a great game. I think these are clearly the two best sides of the season. Melbourne, we thought in terms of talent, probably was one of those two, but they could not sustain that form. Uh, We talked about Richmond, well, I did, being a potential dark horse. They couldn't even get past the first week of the finals. Collingwood were the story of the year? They were. Yeah. They were. But I think these two teams are the best two teams of the season. Do you agree? I agree, yeah. Uh, Very early on, um, I'm not sure where we had Geelong selected, but we certainly, in our season preview, uh, were right on board the the Sydney bandwagon and gave them a great opportunity to be in this position. But what's a grand final without? Uh, and I, I'm going to pass to you in a moment, Ron. What's a grand final without an injury cloud? And already the discussions are on Reed, who's his replacement, and has your man Max Holmes done a hamstring? Now, for me, I know you are you the journo inside, so give me your info in a minute. But from what I saw, he's running quickly, Rowan. He pulled up abruptly and grabbed the back of his hamstring. Now, that's a hamstring. So part B was when he went and laid on the ground. He's hitting his head in anguish that I'm about to miss the grand final. Rowan, he's done a hamstring. Well, uh, that's that's exactly what I thought, and I, I've got to be honest. I, I was really, really upset. I oh, know the press box. I, I was quite devastated. Um, I know I've been living vicariously through Max all year, and for those but, that aren't, there's a but here, is there? For those that aren't aware of this, I've known Max since he was a little kid. Um, but. Uh, well, but. there is there is a but. So I went down the rooms afterwards, and incidentally, I did make a token appearance in Roaming Brian this week, sorry. <laughs> but uh, that was actually me coming from having spoken to Max, and I saw him, and I was also ready to console him, whatever. And he he was bright as a button, and well, good. So. Anyway, the official explanation is, and it's been scanned, they are saying uh, the injury was neural, so like sort of a almost the pinching of a nerve. They are maintaining that the you know there is no tear as such. Um, he has apparently had this sort of thing crop up before. So I think him thumping the ground is sort of that initial, of course you're going to think I've torn it. But um, the doctors seem to be suggesting that's not the case. Now, look, it's grand final week. We People play ducks and drakes. Maybe maybe they are. But I've got to say, and look, you know how much I love Maxi, but it's not like Tom Hawkins or Joel Selwood, is it? So why would they be so determined to insist that he, he could be a chance to play and he's going to be okay if he's not? I don't think it's worth carrying on like that if it's a case. So I'm going to take them at face value. Plus, look, Max, he he was pretty upbeat. And he said, I, I reckon I'll be okay. And it didn't look to me like he was putting on a brave face. No, it really That's excellent. Up. Yeah. So fingers crossed. I mean, he, look, he's had a wonderful season and he really has become an important part of that side. So um, you don't like to see any player robbed of that chance. Same goes for Sam Reid too. And, uh, uh, I mean, he's he's been important to how Sydney performed over the back half of the season. So fingers crossed for both of them. Anyway, that is throwing ahead, and we do have a preview to do during the week. This is about uh, picking over the bones of both preliminary finals. So let's do that right now. On Footyology, 
wraparound. The first preliminary final was at the MCG on Friday evening in front of a crowd of 77,677. And they saw a thumping win to Geelong by 71 points over Brisbane. The final scores, Geelong 18-12-120, defeating Brisbane 7-7-49. The goal kickers for the Cats, four to Tom Hawkins, and it was 4-3. Could have been, probably should have been about seven goals. Stengel three, two to Dangerfield, two to Myers, two to Rowan singles. The rest for Brisbane. Two to Hipwood, the only multiple goal kicker, singles the rest. Well, it was a pantsing, Robert. They uh, had the better of this game right from the start. They extended that lead. So by halftime, it was out to an even five goals and then absolutely hammered the nails in the Brisbane coffin in the third quarter with a burst of seven goals for in the third term to just two goals, one and uh, the last 30 minutes, pretty much glorified junk time because the game was done and dusted. It is Geelong's 15th win in a row. Uh, we mentioned at the top the injury concern about Max Holmes, who we have fingers crossed or hopefully he can come up and take a well-deserved spot in the grand final. Uh, a lot to talk about here. Hawkins, great. Stengel, great. Um, Brian Myers, one of the best games he's played, and Paddy Dangerfield. Now, he's had an interrupted sort of season, but I reckon this was just about his best game for 2022. 28 disposals, two goals in the first quarter, one off about one step from 50 metres, which really set the tone. 16 contested possessions, eight clearances. It was a real statement quarter, Rob. It was like the Geelong Stars coming out and saying, okay, we know... We've lost the odd preliminary final. We're not going to lose this one. We are on a mission. And uh, that's pretty much what ensued after, uh, ensued after that point. Yeah, we looked at this game in, in preview, Rowan. We thought, like, there was an opportunity for O'Connor to come into the side. But they, they, they kept to their structure, but they did allocate one of their most important players in Atkins to Neil. So uh, um, Atkins was a proactive tagger. It's different to a negative tag. He did a very good job, but he also got help from Selwood. So everyone took a little bit of a turn there, but the focus was on Ak- uh, was on Atkins. Uh, Brisbane's forward structure was totally crowded, um, outnumbered. This was a masterclass of finals pressure football. They outnumbered them round the ball. I know they're old cliches and a very basic game plan. Wherever you went, there was four to three or there was five to four. And being bigger bodies and more physically – it actually wore down Brisbane significantly. Some pivotal moments too, and one for me, and so it's too easy sometimes to sort of pinpoint a moment and go, oh, well, that, you know, that was a real telling moment or that was a turning point or whatever. But I thought this one really was, and it was when um, I think it was Coleman coming out of defence for Brisbane uh, found Eric Hipwood. Hipwood dropped a relatively simple mark Zach Guthrie picked up the ball on the turnover, banged it into the goal front about 20 metres from goal. Gary Rowan marked, kicked the goal. That kicked off a chain of, uh, I think, three pretty quick goals for the Cats and uh, took what had been 
a manageable deficit for the Lions to almost out of reach territory. But it's just those moments, you know, fumbles, guys getting caught with the ball, turnovers. Uh, you know, Geelong were definitely the dominant side in those pivotal moments, even early on, weren't they? Yeah, you mentioned the small moments, like there was a McCarthy fumble, a Berry fumble. And interesting, on Berry this week, they did start him in the centre bounce to try and add some physicality in there. It remained, look, in hindsight, um, you know, were they physically strong enough? I, I gave them a chance if they could run. And they couldn't run, they weren't allowed to. And I just were I, I just loved how Geelong stifled this Brisbane forward line. Well, they did it brilliantly. And just to that end, too, uh, Brisbane were held to their lowest score of the season, and they got smashed a couple of times by Melbourne this year. But even in those um, beltings, they scored more than they did in this game. It was their lowest score of the season, and this was a side which had kicked 198 points aggregate over the previous two finals. The other thing, Rob, I've got to say, uh, when it was raining during the afternoon and it, it was belting down, so we knew we were going to have a pretty slippery, wet sort of surface, that made me even more confident that Geelong were going to win because I think physical strength comes to the fore in those greasier conditions and they are a much physically stronger side than Brisbane are. Yeah, look, just catching on a couple of points, and then I'll get into one of the key areas that I I found intriguing. Um, uh, like their first nine entries, Brisbane had one shot at 11%. After 18 entries, they'd had four shots at 22%. So what are Geelong doing? They're getting numbers back. They're On paper, this is a, inverted commas, a brilliant forward line. This is a creative, they have tools, they have excitement, they have pace, they have brilliance. So how do you stifle that? You do it with numbers. And the way they work, Stanley Blixarves and Tom Stewart, in my opinion, is a masterstroke and something they've worked on all year. We've, we've, we've spoken about them improving their tactical game. So basically, in summary, technical summary, if there's a boundary throw-in on the winger or ball up, Stewart will drop back into the back line. Blixarves, who's already there as the ruck rover, will assume the mantle of the tapping ruckman and a Myers or a Close or a Holmes will come up and take the ruck rover position. Stanley then goes and stands on a McStay. He'll stand on a Danaher or a Hipwood and he can do that adequately. So what that happens, Ron, Tom Stewart becomes free. Mm. And people yelling down the TV like me, why is Tom Stewart free? How do they get Tom Stewart free? Why doesn't a club put someone on Tom Stewart? That's how it works. And it happens so quickly and so well orchestrated, it is very, it's virtually impossible to stop. Well, that that is a fascinating insight. So th thanks for explaining that brilliantly too. And I, as you were saying that, I could picture it in my head. So hopefully... Our listeners are getting an idea of how that works too. But it, that does tie in with what we've been saying about Geelong. Um, one of the improvements is they have greater flexibility now. And Blitzarves is a key to that, isn't he? Because he's such a great athlete, well, but he's tall. Yeah. He can play any number of roles. And um, the other thing, just on yeah. the end of that, then they reverse it. So Stanley will take the ruck and Blitzarves, who's also a natural backman, he goes and plays that seventh defender. Yeah. But that's you know, where the Holmes and Myers and and um, Close, they're so important to come up the ground 
and even up the numbers around a, a midfield contest. Yeah, well, the other thing to notice, just uh, on that defence, you know, you talked about freeing up Stewart, but it's it doesn't even always have to be Stewart. It, it can just be one of those medium size or smaller defenders gets off the chain, so they are free to rebound. And the proof of the pudding is in the stats here. And if you had a look at it, I'm looking at Geelong's leading disposal winners. Okay, Dangerfield twenty eight, Duncan twenty six. But I think this is significant. The next two on that disposal list, Zach Tui, 24, Jake Collar-Jasney, he's not even a, a running player really, but 23. Zach Guthrie, 19, he's in their top 10 disposal winners. So they win a lot of ball and generate a lot of rebound off the half-back line. Now, Geelong's had a really good defence for a number of years now, but I don't think it's had as attacking a defence as it has now. Now, I asked Chris Scott about this. And, you know, Chris is quite loath to ever sort of yeah, say much for fear of giving stuff away. But he was basically agreeing. And that is another improvement about this side. They are a, a more creative side out of defence than they used to be. We've got a bit of time, Rowan. Just just, just relayed the question and how you did answer it. Uh, ask it word for word. Um, well, I think I, I just said to him pretty much that. I said you, you can't help but notice that some of your highest possession winners were your halfbacks. So um, it appears like you're generating more attack from that uh, defensive yeah. line. Um, okay. And then he, yeah, sort of spoke ha- riddles for about three minutes. <laughs> but I, I enjoy Chris Scott's press conferences because he, he likes talking and he likes bantering, but he likes sort of trying not to give stuff away. So it's almost like a cat and mouse game anyway. Just on uh, preliminary finals, well, look, in any finals, but more so in preliminary finals, you will find, you, you'll say to me, hang on, Shuri, they just got beaten by 12 goals. You will find in every game there is a pivotal moment where the side that is losing will have their moment. And that moment doesn't mean they'll hit the front, but they might drag it back in this case from well over 30 points to within a manageable under four goals. Yeah, And that's what have happened... They kicked the last goal just before halftime, Rowan. Yep. Right? Gave them a half a sniff. Yeah. Even though they're being outplayed. And then cometh the hour, cometh the man. Oh, I know, I know where this is well, going. Well, no, that, that's why you go to Brisbane. Yeah. Well, I love the kid. It. Oh, I love the no, kid. Well, hang on. The Who you haven't named it. I will in a minute. There okay. was a window there and Joe Danader didn't hit the stadium. He yep. missed the stadium. Yeah. That what what an imp- like we always talk about last goal before half time Rowan, first goal after half time doesn't yeah. matter whether you're in front close or um, a fair way behind that they're critical goals and that was Gelo- that was the the Brisbane Lions opportunity to say hang on a minute half a chance yeah yeah well just to fill in a bit of detail there so they went to the half time break thirty points in arrears. First centre bounce of the second half. Brisbane wins the ball. It goes to Joe Danaher, uh, 40 seconds. And, yeah, a really bad miss. And it got worse. It was a 12-point turnaround because from the resultant kicking, ball goes down the other end and you had that magnificent snap from Tyson Stengel from right near the boundary line. So you've got your Brisbane key forward missing a bit of a, a gimme. And then a Geelong player kicking one out of his you-know-what, which made the difference then 36 points yep. rather Instead than 24, of 24 points. Rowan. Instead yep. of, Rowan, how do you change your name? 
what's it called? You change it by D pole. Correct. Can it now be known as Tyson Stengel three? I kicked three again, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> so I think, uh, I, I think that's that is the ninth time this season oh. that Stengel has kicked three goals. <laughs> Nine times. That is yeah. an incredible. And what what a recruit! What a recruit! And, he's um, he's not only clearly the recruit of the year as far as a, a, a senior experience player goes. He is one of the best recruits I I can remember, and. He is going, if Geelong wins this premiership and they're going to start pretty warm favourites, he will have been an absolutely pivotal part of it. And when we're talking about their improvement, that guy is one of the major reasons they have improved so much. He's it's what, a, what a pickup. Yeah. It's a, just a dynamic group of medium smalls, isn't it? Close, Holmes, Myers, and Stengel. It is yep. incredibly dangerous. And they so, Stengel's a little bit closer to goal. The other boys push up to wings and they push up to stoppages, as I tried to explain. And um, that they're just so important because of. Uh, of Cameron and and Hawkins's general dominance. I thought you, I, I'm glad you mentioned close because um, he, he's important too. And he doesn't get a lot of kudos, and there's nothing particularly flashy about him. And he and he tends to wear the long sleeves, doesn't he? He's got that silly sort of World War One fighter pilot moustache or whatever it is. But um, he's a really really good player for him. They've got a real army of those little quick. Terrier, forward terrier types, and it's made them a much, much better side. Um, just a quick note on Brisbane. So, look, um, really disappointing performance from them, but I, I still think that this season ends up being a tick, mainly off the back of those two finals wins. You were talking about a side that was 1-5 in finals over the previous, um, what was it, three seasons. You know, if it had been one six and instant elimination, you could have been looking at the end of an era. They will at least go into next season now thinking, well, we we won two pretty decent finals, knocked over the the uh, re- most recent two premiership teams. You know, we've still got a bit going for us. So, as disappointing as this performance was, I still think they've they've uh, achieved something this season. And it looks like they'll get, well, they will get young Ashcroft, who's a dominant young player, and they'll get Josh Dunkley by the sounds of it. So they'll certainly come again, Rowan. And you're quite right. There's categories of finals of appearance. There's the one one hit wonder, in and straight out. Two, you get a bit of a sniff. You're really playing finals and you're right in it when you play three finals. So on that basis, that's a very good year from Brisbane. Three finals, you're deep in the mix. Yep. No, good, uh, good wrap up. All right, uh, seventy-one points that margin for Geelong, and they move into yet another grand final. Uh, what an era this has been for the Cats. Uh, that was how the first preliminary final unfolded. Uh, the second one, of course, late Saturday afternoon up in Sydney. Let's have a chat about that. The second preliminary final was played at the SCG, 4.45pm, the start time, a twilight game. And wow, what a thrilling, breathtaking uh, finish this turned out to be. A tough game, but not a uh, not necessarily low scoring. Two sides both yeah. almost topping 100 points. In the end, Sydney reprising its last preliminary final at the SCG, 
when it, of course, famously beat Essendon by one point. I'm still bitter about that one. Uh, 26 years later, they did it again. A one-point victory over Collingwood. The final score, Sydney, 14-11-95, defeating Collingwood, 14-10-94. The goal kickers for the Swans, three to Papley, two to Franklin, and singles the rest. And we had a total of 11 individual goal kickers for the Swans. For Collingwood, two to Elliott, two to Hoskin Elliott, two to McCreary, and singles the rest. Uh, Collingwood also with 11 individual goal kickers. Well, Swans got right on top early, kicked the first four goals of this game, uh, out by 26 points early on. Collingwood. Finally finding the target, ending up with um, three goals in that first quarter. But that margin uh, just on or or above four goals was pretty much how it stayed most of the day until the last quarter where Sydney really started to feel the pinch and Collingwood, they got the scent of another amazing comeback win in their nostrils. They went hammer and tongs. And wow, what a finish this was. In fact, it was still, um, just having a look at my notes here, it was still 21 points, the difference with five and a half minutes left to play. That was when Brody Majacek took a mark about 25 metres out. He reduced the gap to 15 points. With about four minutes left to play, Will Hoskin Elliott, snapped a goal and reduced the deficit to nine points. And then with two minutes, 42 still left on the clock, steel side bottom snapped another goal. The margin now three points and uh, amazing last 90 seconds or so Sydney in possession, big contested mark to buddy Franklin who soaked up some time uh, he chipped to Dylan Stevens. He chipped the ball to Rampy. He went down the line where Tom Hickey took another big mark and you thought, oh, well, that's got to be it. That was with about a minute four left on the clock. He kicked down the line. The ball went out of bounds. It was thrown in with 51 seconds left in the Sydney forward line, but still Collingwood kept coming. In the end, in the very last play of the game, the ball bobbling around in the Collingwood goal square, Sydney rush it across the line, and as the kicking was taken, the siren sounded. Sydney victors by one point. Everyone finally taking another breath. It was dramatic. It was epic. Uh, what a game, Robert! How do you see it? Well, there's so much to unpack here, Ron. I think I'll start with the uh, gentleman that just uh, took a mark on the wing and soaked up a bit of time, and his name's not. Lance Franklin, it was the most important player on the ground. And that was Tom Hickey again, Rowan. Mm. The journeyman, four-club journeyman, rucking. And it. Uh, this might be for another time, maybe Wednesday. I think it opens the discussion on, um, on Grundy, uh, uh, an, an elite ruckman for Collingwood. So we'll leave that now. So I'll start again. Uh, I just wanted to put that there in case I forgot. I thought Tom Hickey was brilliant, and it does raise the question, do you, do they trade out Brody Grundy? I don't think they should. Maynard centre-half back onto Franklin was an interesting one, and the reason they do that is because they've taken the punt with Franklin's overhead marking with his shoulders, and they want 
Maynard to be aggressive, to be quick, to be strong on him because Franklin's mobility would worry Murphy and it would worry Howell. Mm. In the end, I thought McRae's had a great year. I think he left him there too long, Rowan, mm. and got Franklin right into the game where the matchup that helped get Collingwood back into the game was more, finally more to Franklin, brought more up the ground a bit more and got him attacking and running and started Collingwood's running game. Now, that's a, a really good observation because we talk with Geelong about, you know, you you want your rebound defenders freed up from the duty of looking after an opponent. But this is a, another good indicator of just how good Darcy Moore is, isn't it? That he was able to not only quell Buddy Franklin's influence, but almost exploit him in a way by running off him. And I, I thought Moore was absolutely superb for the Pies. What a player he's been. Um, so the other good players for the Pies were, uh, well, primarily the same two who have been terrific for them in the other finals, namely Scott Pendlebury and Jack Crisp. Um, Crisp, a pretty interesting one because they obviously would have put a bit of planning into him and he was picked up initially by Callum Mills. Correct. It wasn't, yep. wasn't really a tight tag, though, was it? The only sort of tight tag that they applied was um, Clark on Nick Dacos, and that had a fair bit of effect too. Um, how did you see those midfield matchups? Oh, look, it's great. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Clark Dacos was another win. He kicked a goal on him. He exposed his lack of defence. And, look, Dacos, mate, first game, first-year player. Let's cut him some slack. But it is a learning... Uh, it's a great tick that he put at Clark, but he got on top. Uh, Mills to Crisp was a good matchup. Parker to Dugowie. Uh, uh, Longmore likes doing his opposition. He likes allocating roles. He likes putting blokes on players. But to their credit, Dacos finished the game well. Crisp finished the game magnificently. And Dugowie started to get motoring, didn't it? So together with Moore... It just got them going. But the constant for Collingwood, and we'll get to Sydney in a moment, folks, the constant to me for Collingwood was once again this marvellous player who was in everything in the comeback. You know, the old Charlie Watts, he was magnificent, Pendlebury, just linking the game together and bringing them into the game. The other one I want to talk about is it was the first time, the first time I saw Murphy, Moore, Howe, and particularly Noble and Quainer, the two blokes at ground level, get very, very edgy. Mm. It, it was the most disrupted I've seen this wonderful back line all year. Pressure from Papley, pressure from Franklin, pressure all over the ground. Finally, just, well, they did. They broke this wonderful back line. And, and they were, um, I thought Buddy was unusually aggressive and Papley's always sort of in your face, but it, it looked like a quite deliberate ploy, didn't it, to sort of, you know, really antagonise the Collingwood defenders. Buddy was, you know, pushing and shoving a bit with Maynard. Papley was getting up in their faces every time they made a mistake. I remember actually at one stage he was he was getting into Quainor about, you know, pulling out of a contest or whatever. And Quainor was looking at him like, what the hell are you talking about? I saw the replay and Quainor <laughs> was nowhere near it. it yeah, a, I looked at that too. <laughs> we're talking about the same yeah. thing. Papley's gone to him and gone, oh, you ducked your head. So I'm, I'm, I watched the replay. Quainor was about 15 metres away from the contest. <laughs> and he thought, do you think I was someone else? Do you think I was Heritia Lumumba or someone from 10 years previously? 
Um, but they really did uh, sort of physically and psychologically antagonise them. A couple of other things I wanted to mention, just observations. Um, you know, we think Sydney's got a good balance between that, you know, tight inside contested stuff and the outside run. And that tends to be the same division between their older players and their younger players. But one of the younger players who has really got a harder edge to his game than I gave him credit for is Errol Goulden. I thought uh, he ended up with about seven tackles, I think, for the game. Might have been the most of anyone. And he's got a really strong defensive game. I thought he was super impressive. And Chad Warner, who was quiet in that first final, boy, did he make up for it in this one. I thought he was terrific for them as well. What do you think of those two? Uh, they're going to be key to next week. We'll we'll discuss it. it would, this game will hinge on how well that core young players, Robottom, Warner, McInerney, Goulden, how well they play next week, Rowan. If they play really, really well, this is a huge chance for Sydney. They got a little bit rattled at times, Sydney, and certainly what worries me is that next week I don't think Geelong, well, Geelong will improve the longer the game going. Sydney do have these bursts of disappearing, don't they, Ron? We've discussed this over over the years where they can have bad quarters and get over the run. You know, Blakey started to get a little bit wobbly, those two frees, nudging a bloke over the ball, um, gave away those two critical frees. They've got to keep their composure. And the interesting stat for me was at one stage it was 30 inside 50s each. This is a testimony to Sydney's back line and their defensive pressure. 30 inside 50s each and 30 points down. Yeah, yeah, no, they um, uh, they were able to. I mean, whilst they weren't unerringly accurate, you know, they certainly generated scores from plenty of those attacks, whereas the Pies, uh, you know, 7-1 at half time, So you had 18 scores. In fact, was it uh, inside 50 counted half time was, as he desperately searches for his notes, uh, yeah, it was 30-30 at half time, And at that yeah. stage, you had uh, 18 scores to eight scores. So, wow. um, yeah, look, Sydney certainly had the more potent forward line. But, again, and how many times have we talked about this this year, conversion and efficiency. It's just such a hugely important part of the game now. Now, Collingwood has only generated eight scores from 30 inside 50s, but seven of the eight scores are goals. So it still gave them some sort of chance, whereas if that had been, you know, three, four, the game was over because a five-goal margin would have been 10 goals. And this is the thing about this game. This is the the amazing thing about Collingwood. So Logan McDonald kicks the first goal of the second half, four minutes in. That makes the margin 36 points. The margin was still 35 points as the 10-minute mark approached, and that was when Nick Dacos got a free kick and a pretty questionable 50, it must be said. Um, that reduced the margin to 29 points. So 10 minutes into the third term, Sydney's still leading by six goals and Collingwood has very, very nearly pinched this game. They just, they will not quit. They never say die. And, you know, their, their momentum has been such a huge part of their season, but the amount of belief that they have in their capacity to come back and win from anywhere and the crowd sensed it too. I mean, what about the crowd? For a game in Sydney, and great crowd too, uh, 45,000. I think it was the third biggest crowd for an AFL game ever in Sydney. But, God, there was a lot of support for Collingwood. And the noise level in those last five minutes, and and, and it was 
because they knew that they were a real chance. They are never out of any game. As I said before, still 21 points the difference with only just over five minutes to play. Um, what an amazing season they've had. They've come from 17th to within two points of a grand final spot. Um, Craig McRae, for me, easily the coach of the year, regardless of what happens next week. And, uh, you know, for a side that we thought were, we didn't know where they were headed on or off the field, what an amazing year it's been for the Collingwood Football Club. And, yeah, they'll be they'll be pretty devastated at losing so heartbreakingly, narrowly. But the amount of pride they should also be feeling about what they've achieved this year, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful season for them. And they will learn because they were exposed, Ron. Uh, they were exposed. That Sydney got them up there before and they got them again, even though the margin was small. Sydney brought heat. They brought pressure. They had the right matchups, and um, they were they smacked um, Collingwood in contested ball. So there's a couple of negative takeaways in all the positives that Collingwood and their hierarchy will go away and say, "Hey, next step. This is where we've got to get better." I just want to ask you a quick coaching question. I mean, uh, you know, we we both really rate John Longmire, but I did feel like Sydney were overly negative and overly defensive in that last quarter. And I know, you know, yeah, you can try and run down the clock and, and they've done that successfully before. But I just think, you know, once Collingwood kicked at least a couple and got a bit of a sniff, you need to take the game on. Surely the best way of... of um, defending a lead is to keep building on that lead. And sometimes when I think sides are just trying to possess the ball and hang it on, hang on to it and run down the clock, it's almost inviting the opposition to throw the kitchen sink at them and let's see what happens. It, it sort of made Collingwood be more bold and aggressive and take more chances, and it worked for them. And well, I, I just, I just yeah. think they can't afford to do that against Geelong. And they put Mills behind the ball. Now, that was the first stage of, not panic stations, you know, we're under pressure here, let's put Callum Mills behind the ball. But it does give Collingwood an extra player somewhere, Rowan, in, in, the, in the scheme of things. They did get nervous. That what worries me about next week because, um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about the mindset, their pressure game, uh, their tactics and uh, their youth and all that, they've got every bit of ammunition to worry and upset Geelong. That that statement you made about going into your shell, controlling the game, not looking to kick the next goal, um, it, it did play into Collingwood's hands a little bit, given the fact that Collingwood knew they had to throw everything overboard and get into it, and they were magnificent, Collingwood, kept the ball alive, but there was a nervousness, wasn't there? And yep. it went and it seeped through the crowd and it seeped onto the ground. And even John in the uh, down in the dugout got very testy and very intense where yep. he was before he was well and truly in control of the situation. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I guess the other thing too is, you know, does it mean that Sydney comes off the ground and rather than sort of be up and jubilant about, you know, we've marched into a grand final they have just clung on by the skin of their teeth, haven't they? Does that sort of, you know, it, okay, it's a new game and a new week, but does that mean that they sort of start the week in with not the same sort of level of buoyancy that you'd think they'd might have? I think have? this is a good thing. I think it's a perfect build-up for them. Perfect. Right. Hard, well, tough, four quarters, 
four quarters of footy and uh, mission accomplished. See you in Melbourne next week. Whole yeah, new week, Rowan. Yeah, well, the other thing to remember too is that they've had more success against the Cats than anyone. You're talking about a side that has lost only four games for the year. Now, Geelong's three other losses were by 10 points, three points and 12 points. They lost to the Swans by five goals. That was a pretty comprehensive win. So that's another reason that Sydney should take plenty of confidence into the grand final. But that was how the second preliminary, uh, sorry, first preliminary final. No, sorry. Hang on, now I'm getting confused. It was the second preliminary final played out a thrilling one-point win to the Swans, 14-11-95, defeating Collingwood, 14-10-94. That is our preliminary final reviews. Um, uh, of course, we uh, appreciate your support and you've consistently supported us for a long time. Now, if you want to extend that support into the financial realm um, you can visit the supporter page, uh, the ACAST supporter page, thanks to ACAST. Wherever you listen to this podcast, you'll find a link there in the show description. And we'd also encourage you to become an official patron of the Footyology brand. And how do you do that? You do that by finding one of the many links to Patreon, big orange label there with Patreon on it. Patreon are a wonderful supporter of independent media, publishing, writing, content producing. Um, they're terrific Patreon and uh, you can subscribe to Footyology through them. We're asking $7 Australian per month. And uh, that just helps us keep things ticking over and giving you the content you are looking for. We will be back with a big grand final preview uh, during the week, Robert, and uh, we're going to have a little post-show meeting about just what form that takes, but it'll be jam-packed with all the analysis you need of the biggest game of the football year, the AFL Grand Final, next Saturday afternoon. I'm very happy to say afternoon Grand Final still between Geelong and between Sydney should be an absolute ripper. And we'll be back midweek to preview it in thorough detail. We'll see you then. Thanks, Ron.